God has designed the world and his pinnacle creation, humanity, to come together in marital covenant union, to have children, this is Adam and Eve, and fill the world with image bearers. This was the plan. This is how it is to be worked out. Now, we all know that sin comes in and wreaks havoc on those things. And today we're going to talk about that as we look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Now, this is also, as many circles have come to know and cherish, what is known as Sanctity of Life Sunday. So it couldn't be more fitting. And I want us to stop and truly consider what this means and what it should mean for us, given the reality that sanctity means holy And sacred. I'm sure many of us proclaim this as true, and that is good. Life is sacred, but I want us to consider this even deeper this Sunday. And I want us to ask ourselves how holy and sacred do we actually believe life to be? And are we finding not only the definition of sacred and holy, but are we finding the function and form of life? From only Holy Scripture. Now, this is important, and this is critical to this sermon specifically for you. Due to the nature of what I'm going to be covering today, I think it's critical for you to know my heart and for you and for you to understand the impact sin has had on our world at the outset of this sermon. Sin's impact on the core of God's design. And for us is vast and heartbreaking, especially in the original design, which we're going to talk about today, the core, the narrative, what this is all, how this all began, what this is all about, where we are all headed towards, both physically and spiritually. There are no doubt those of you who have lost children, those of you who have lost touch with your children. Those of you whose families have been ravaged by divorce and marital pain. Those of you who can't stand the thought of ever being married. And some of you who can't stand the thought of not being married. There are no doubt some of you who have found and will find yourselves in irreversible situations that are contrary to God's design. Here's my encouragement to all of you. Given that and what we'll talk about today. I want you to know that more than my understanding those things that I've just mentioned, Christ understands. Christ cares for us, and he meets us in our brokenness. As we cast all of our anxieties on a God who created all things, because now unimaginably, he cares for us. Which seems rote, but as we say it out loud, seems almost absurd. That the maker of heaven and earth cares for us like none other and like no other. I want you to see the reality that you may have missed in God's original design. And I want Christ to meet you in that this morning. And I want you to consider what that means for you going forward. Because what I'm going to talk about this morning will undoubtedly land on each of you in a different way. And cause each of you to move along your trajectory of sanctification, being more like Christ. 
There's two parts to the text that I want to break apart for us. Verses 18 through 20. Let me read that for you. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to all the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a suitable helper. Now, what's interesting about this suitable helper, other portions of Scripture take this up as a descriptor of God himself, as a suitable helper. Now, one of the things that we see in this aloneness is we see something very unique we see that not only is there only one thing that God accounts that is not good in this perfect creation, as Genesis 131 says at the very end, that everything that God had created was very good. I'll talk about that in a second. But what you're going to see is like no other creation, that as Adam names them, they all come in pairs or multiples, and he's naming this, whatever that might have looked like. I'm not certain. We just know that Scripture says that. He's naming them. Name simply means he's having authority. To name something gives you authority. This is the reason why uh, God himself names John the Baptist. God himself renames Jacob to Israel. God himself names the Son of God himself. Because what we're seeing is the authority of God on display in these things. This is the reason why you have Jacob's, primarily Jacob's name changing to Israel, is to display his authority over his firstborn son, which we'll see. But here's where it gets difficult for us in the original design. God has made us to be in covenant marital union with another And to live that out in display of the sanctity of life to the birthing of children. Now, like I said before, now I know as I've counseled many folks, some of the deepest sufferings are those two. Isn't that interesting? Some of the deepest sufferings that maybe you have undergone that I have seen are on those two. Someone is deeply afraid that they're not going to get married. Someone, I remember one of my dearest friends early on in church planting, we prayed for them daily that they would have a child. And the years went by, and the years went by. We even see this in Scripture. Hannah, Hannah is dying for a child. And it isn't just for posterity, because in the Old Testament, or actually in all of the ancient world before the Industrial Revolution, children weren't just on the pleasurable spectrum. They were also on the productive spectrum. Children and your posterity to explain first, I think I believe it's First Timothy 1.15, the woman will be saved by childbearing. If you've ever wondered about that complex text, the reality is in their time, you were eternal in the sense that you had posterity. To have no posterity is to lose your life while you still live. The reason why Pharaoh is under such condemnation at the last plague is he loses his son. Pharaoh is God, and the son of Pharaoh is the son of God, if you will, in the Egyptian economy. And what God has done, 
has ended the reign of Egypt. That's one layer of what's happening here. To have children is to make sure that your name carries on. To have children is to make sure that you are still present on the earth. We tell church planters this, and I'll never forget, we had a meeting with church planters. And one of, one of our uh, guests had been 30 years in church planting. And he said, the way you stop a, pla- a church from plateauing is this, you plant churches. And then he went on to explain that what happens in church planting is the posterity of the sending church, like you guys were planted from Northwest Bible Church, the mother church. It gave birth, in a sense, to you, and eventually you will do the same as well. That's how you live on. The churches that Paul started live on in you. We are the posterity of the first century church churches. I think the reformer John Calvin will help us enter into the conversation today when he says, let men of faith learn to fight the evil suggestion from Satan from this word of God by which he decrees married life for man, not for his ruin, but for his well-being. God's design for humanity is marriage and children. This is how he has designed the world to function. And if you look at any report of why someone would, again, on Sanctity of Life Sunday, why are the top, what are the top causes that someone would decide to take the life of their own child in utero? What are some of the top causes? Almost all of the top 10 are financially connected. Almost all of the top 10 are financially connected to the inconvenience we might experience in that it's almost a natural inclination, inclination for us to say, well, we're going to wait. And I have two older daughters, and we've had this conversation in real time. Well, I want to get things settled. I want to get things right. I want to get my finances in order and before I actually have children. And one of the things I said to my oldest son is we went to Genesis and said, that is not God's design for you. God's design for us. Now, given sin wrecks that. Now, I understand that. God's design for us is to be in a covenant marital relationship. It's assumed in all of scripture and to live in such a way. Now, here's where it gets tense for us. I think all of us would agree that Sanctity of Life Sunday and not not murdering your child in utero, we'd all probably agree with that. Most of the church, in fact, would agree with that. And oftentimes what happens on this Sunday is we come together and we talk about those who would do that or those who might think about that and we shelter ourselves in here. But now I want to take this a step further for us. There is a spectrum in which this lives. If on this end is stopping the life in utero, because it isn't sacred. On this end is preventing a life from even happening because it isn't sacred. The scripture constantly says that children are a blessing. Children are a heritage. Children are a gift. And the question for the 21st century Western church is, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? I remember my wife and I had three children. I've got a 20-year-old, 17, and a 13-year-old, girl, girl, boy. 
And I remember as we were in Louisville and we were wrestling with God's design and how he has made us. And we wanted to be obedient to the Lord because sin is simply disobedience to both his design and his purpose for us in any form that that may take, both in conscience for you and in reality for the law of Scripture. And as we wrestled through this, we said, I don't think we should prevent children anymore. I don't think we should do anything to prevent children anymore. We asked ourselves, why are we preventing children? What is it? And for us, it also came down to those financial issues. We didn't have insurance at the time because this is when insurance had changed. We weren't unable to afford insurance, or we didn't have health insurance at the time, but we made a commitment that we would practice covenant intimacy as a family because I believe, like you all believe, in the providence of God. He is good and he is great, but do we actually believe that at the core design of ourselves in that we practice marital faithfulness so that we don't prevent God's blessing so that we don't prevent the heritage of God for us. And when we made that decision, some years passed. And some grief had begun to settle in to us. And it wasn't until we came to Minnesota that, that out of, I want to say out of the blue, out of the providential blue, about two months after in God's providence, he made sure we had insurance Now, we were practicing faithful covenant intimacy throughout this whole time. God gave us another son. And we named him Abraham. Because he is a son to us of promise. And we have practiced that ever since. And I'll say this to married couples. Our marriage went to an entirely different level when we actually lived out our belief in the providence, the goodness, and greatness of God in that most intimate setting for our lives. We're praying today for another child. I I mean, from a 20-year-old to a 4-year-old is where we span, but we're praying for another little girl that we'd name Eden by God's grace. And it doesn't come without worry. And when Abraham was born, I'll never forget, my wife has never had a surgery. I'll never forget the look on her face. His heartbeat kept going down. His heartbeat kept going down. Almost to nothing every time she would contract. She's never had an issue with any pregnancy. Finally, the doctor, there's a lot of providential things that happen. The doctor comes back in. He was supposed to have gone away. And he says, we're taking her in to do a C-section right now. The look on her face of having to be cut open was sheer terror. She goes in. I'm, I'm getting all scrubbed up. It's like you, you put the scrubs on. You can go back and you can see things. Well, they, Mr. Mr. Wittstein, you can't go because something has happened. Turns out my wife has lost twice the amount of blood that you're supposed to lose. She's never even been cut open. So I remember for the first 30 minutes to hour, it was just me and Abraham in, in the, I guess it's the NICU. Now that's something we think about and we have talked about and we have wrestled through. What if at age 45 and my wife at 41, what if something goes wrong? But listen, the what ifs do not decide the provident design of our God and the show of faithfulness from his people. Children are a blessing. They are a heritage. And in America right now, the stats, I think, are below two child per home. 1.9, I think it is. That's unsustainable. 
The problem with that is, do you know how many Christians there are in America? More than should change that number. Did you realize that the Islamic brothers, the Islamic and the Muslim folks, they have as a stated evangelistic strategy to have children. Do you know where they got that from? Genesis 1 and 2. They believe the Old Testament. They believe the Gospels, where they would call the NGOs. They're getting that from that. And in their obedience, part of their, we all have an eschatology, part of their ruling and dominating the world is to have children. And they do, to the tune of about five per family. But what's happening in the West is something that needs to be reversed, something that needs to be addressed. Not only do we enter the story this morning with God having created a son in Adam, his first son, as Romans 5.12 makes clear, but we also see his great care for Adam and really all humanity after in that, as Genesis 2.18 says, it is not good that Adam be alone. Adam's loneliness is a matter of pleasure and productivity. Now let me pause there. What your contemporary culture has taken away from you is the productivity of your children. And what does that mean? Once upon a time, you would have children because if you didn't, you would starve and die because the farm had to be tended to. The animals had to be tended to. The household had to be tended to. But what's broken down in the, in, since the Industrial Revolution in the West is the household. You've got to understand that as C.R. Wiley suggests, the household is completely fragmented and fractured. Now, how do we get back? How do we get back to that? The first way we get back to that is we thumb our noses at the world and say, no matter the financial obligation, I will be obedient to God's design in having and living as though I am not going to prevent children. You have to understand that so far as us being on the streets and in the picket lines at at abortion clinics and all these things, thinking ourselves superior, all the while, most Christians do their best to prevent children and manage the family. This is not a condemnation. I am and was there too. I am encouraging you this morning that you and I, looking at Scripture, have our now time to be obedient before the Lord. And some of you guys may be struggling with this. Some of you guys may be thinking this through. But the productivity of the family is gone. There is no more productivity. And we have to gain that back. Adam's loneliness is unlike anything that exists in this new creation. And one of the ways we understand this is precisely how God deals with his loneliness. How does God deal with his loneliness? He is alone. If you ever watch the show, one of my wife and I's favorite shows on Netflix is Alone. I don't know if you've ever seen that show, but essentially, if you've ever seen Survivor, it's like Survivor with nobody else around. Now, what's fascinating about this show is what they do is they take trained wilderness survivalists and they put them in the most remote portions of the world with the most harsh climates that you can imagine. And you know what gets almost every single one of them? Do you want to know? Loneliness. That's why the show's called Alone. And what you see in this is you see them struggling through the pain of no one around. We were not meant to live alone. 
God, as Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator says, God has a remedy for loneliness. And it's marriage and children that live in a society that come together as God's people and worship as families. God has a remedy for loneliness. One of the things that struck me last night as we were watching this show, this one guy who was completely capable. I mean, he could build traps. He was catching wild animals. I mean, he was building uh, fireplaces and out of nothing. It was a, there's no way this guy could have been beaten. And just like that, he gave up because he was so full of dread that his wife needed him, that his children needed him. And on the boat ride out, he says this, and I'll never forget. I looked at my wife, and she knew that I was preparing this sermon. I looked at her, and we, we kind of like nodded our heads. And he said, this place is a beautiful prison. This place is a beautiful prison. Now, we can construct all the 401Ks, all the 403s, all the savings accounts, all the business ventures. We can collect all these things But the wealth of man does not compare to the wealth of God. And the wealth that God has given us lies within us and our wives, husbands and wives coming together. Did you realize we are eternal creatures? Everybody in this room is going to live forever. I am. You are. But here's where it gets fascinating. You are never most like God. Then when husband and wife, because they have husband and wife, come together in marital intimacy and create life. There is only one other person, there is only one other that can create an eternal thing. That's God himself. The image of God that we bear in in Genesis 1.27 is most prominently displayed when we come together in faith in God's goodness and his greatness as a married couple, come what may, no matter what happens, and give life where there is none. We create something out of nothing, not necessarily nothing, we understand that, but where there was no child, we've created it. And not only have we created it, it's eternal. You and I are eternal, and we create eternal things because we bear the image of God, and that is at the white-hot core of God's image. And what you'll find, and what I have found in my own life, is my joy has a plateau dependent upon how obedient I am to God's design and to the core of his design. A friend of mine who's in our life group for when, while we were at Cities Church and then even when we plant Westview, uh, I set an alarm. He didn't know this until he, I told him recently because he's now engaged. I prayed for this young man for three and a half years. An alarm on my phone every day went off at 312 because of Proverbs 31. And I prayed for God to send him a wife. He wanted a wife. It was kind of bothering him in ways that maybe he didn't even let on. And he is, I think, months away from actually being married. God did something that he didn't think was possible. God did something that this young lady didn't think was possible. If you think about your own marriages, you probably have a story that God did something impossible. For those who aren't married, I understand if maybe you don't, like I said before, maybe you don't think you want to be or maybe you 
can't stand the thought of not ever being. What I would say is trust the Lord. Trust him. Trust him for what he gives and what he doesn't. Love him for what he gives and what he doesn't. Here is God's answer to Adam's loneliness, our loneliness, and the world's loneliness. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he, then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the fashioned a woman with a rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And as if you have not heard enough difficult things, I'm going to give you one more to consider. What's happening here is not a rib, okay? The Hebrew word is side. God takes half of Adam. Now you say, well, how do I? How does somebody get cut in half and live? The same way something is made out of nothing. Do you follow? God can do whatever he wants to. We'll say, well, what, how do you know that? Here's what we know about covenants. Every single covenant you see in scripture has something torn in pieces. Did you realize that? Every single covenant has something torn, except if you don't use this here, except the creation covenant and the creation mandate or what some would call the edemic covenant unless we do this with this text which it's there and we have to the abrahamic covenant what's torn in pieces god begins a relationship with abraham he cuts animals in pieces right they walk through it but but who falls asleep abraham falls asleep just like who adam which we just saw this is a retelling a recounting an echo of this same thing so god walks through this with himself foreshadowing that eventually he his son of god would come and die for us in our place moses what's cut in half well he gets angry he breaks the tablets doesn't he before that what does he do he walks to the red sea and what does the red sea do it parts in half because there are these echoes to God's covenant there is the old covenant and there's the new covenant there's two primary covenants in all of scripture you've seen it in Abraham you've seen it in Noah too when the sky is ripped open and you also see it in Christ because Christ becomes like Adam because Adam is a federal head of all humanity. Christ is the second Adam, the federal head. Christ must be torn in two, and he is on the cross for you and I. But even more than that, on that cross, when it is finished, as he says, what happens next? The veil is torn from top to bottom. Every covenant has something, many things, that is torn in two. Something is made new and what's happening here is the explanation you've always heard that's my better half the two shall become one flesh the reason that is is because what God does at the very beginning to make woman the helper that Adam must have to accomplish what what are they supposed to accomplish the mission of God is for Adam and Eve to come together to have little tiny Adams and Eve to spread the imago Dei the image of God throughout the whole world and the way he does that is not a simple rib but he cuts I would suggest Adam in half and brings the two what well, he doesn't bring the two pieces he cuts them in half and brings Eve out of that and so what you have is you have these two parts 
that will eventually multiply the whole world if sin hasn't wrecked it. 24. For this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. As I close this morning, I want to encourage you to think about, to reflect on, and to give of yourself freely the reality that maybe we haven't understood. Maybe we haven't lived out the design that God has created in us and for us. And I want you to ask yourself, are children really a blessing? We say they are, especially on Sanctity of Life Sunday. It's fascinating that the Bible ends and begins with a marriage. Have you ever noticed that? The Bible begins with a marriage and the Bible ends with a marriage. And if you get a chance to read large or listen to large chunks of scripture at a time, guess what you'll notice? The Bible seems to be nothing but a story of children. It's it's children. Adam and Eve have kids, they fight. What we do is we get lost in the backstory. But the reality is the Bible is a story of children being had all the way up into the, the child, the Christ child, born. And this is our reality. This is our design. And our spiritual component to that is when we go out And make, as Paul said of Timothy, spiritual children of the world. And so there's the both physical component of this and there is the spiritual component of this in Christ. Even as a church, I would guess, and you probably already have, you have to consider if that's the design of God's family, what is the design of this family but to give birth to another church? Now, that may not be tomorrow or next week or next year. But you have to contemplate that's why we exist. We exist to multiply and dominate this world. That is why we exist. That is the eschatology that we live under. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace this morning, Lord. I pray, Father, that a word like this certainly falls on pains of people, hurts, loss, There's certainly those in this congregation who have lost children and the pain and the grief of that, Lord. But what we know is we know you most deeply in our pains, in our hurts, Father. I pray for this congregation, Lord. I pray, Father, that they see something just a little different today in this text. Father, I pray that they reconsider how it is we prioritize things, both as a family and a family of families in this church. I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for the Hatfields. You have done a work here that is unbelievable. And Father, I pray that you would continue to do that work in grace and mercy and make us humble to accept that, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.